Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, put on your thinking caps and connect the dots on these topics. Net metering, solar investment tax credit, property assessed clean energy or PACE, renewable portfolio standards and RECs, state rebates such as SGIP, and state tax credits. Okay, what are they? These are all examples of public policies that help the solar industry thrive. Now, these policies are not the brainchild of our wise legislators. They almost always come from solar industry policy experts. And to help us understand the need for great solar policies, my special guest today is Ann Hoskins, Chief Policy Officer for Sunrun. Now, if you don't know Sunrun, they're the largest residential solar and storage provider in the U.S. So Ann has her hands full with solar policies in over 20 states, plus the state of confusion. I mean, the District of Columbia. Now, prior to her work at Sunrun, Anne was a commissioner at the Maryland PUC. The wall in her office is covered with ivy, including degrees from Cornell, Princeton, and Harvard. And now she's working with a few Stanford grads doing great things in the solar industry. So welcome to the show, Anne. Thanks for having me, Barry. All right. So tell me a little bit about your role at Sunrun. So I serve as the chief policy officer at Sunrun. I've got an amazing team of solar advocates, or sunrunners as we call them, that support Sunrun across the country. We're actually in 23 states and the District of Columbia, and we entered Puerto Rico in June as well. And um, my role is really to help with my team to advocate for policies that are going to enable the growth of home solar and now battery storage across the country. So we work on uh, advocating before legislators, before regulators, and also just trying to talk to the public and to our consumers about how they can engage with public policy. So give me some examples of some of these good policies that the solar industry is working on now. Well, the most important policy that we face across the country is to make sure that consumers who invest in solar can receive fair compensation for the energy that they share with the public. Often this is through net metering policies, but it's also through other types of rate policies to make sure that they're not facing burdens on, you know, what's being charged for interconnection, what's being charged in the form of fixed charges or other types of charges that make it very difficult for them to receive kind of fair compensation for providing a clean and and reliable source of power. That's sort of you know, beginning and end of every day, something that we want to make sure is there for our customers. But then when you go beyond that, now we're seeing many opportunities with storage to, you know, work with legislatures around the country and commissions to look at other ways to incentivize customers to invest in storage because this brings benefits to them as well as to the grid. Um, And then also new exciting policies like what we saw in California just, you know, just approved the new homes initiative where in 2020, all new homes are going to be required to have solar. So those are sort of the range of things. Some are just sort of the, the, the basic, we want to make sure we have fair compensation, and then the range of opportunities to expand solar. Yeah, solar and storage provide us with all kinds of new capabilities. And the recent wildfires we had this year and last year in California were caused by wind damage distribution systems, wind damage power lines, transmission systems. So how can solar and battery storage provide a better solution for a grid? Thanks for asking that because we're we're really focused on that right now. Sunrun is headquartered in San Francisco in the Bay Area and so we've really witnessed the, you know, devastation that has hit California over the last, you know, year really very significantly uh, through the the fires in Santa Rosa, then the fires uh, in Paradise and Chico area and also in Southern California. And so we've stepped back to say, you know, how can we really be part of the solution here? 
And it is a really complex problem for, you know, our regulators and legislators to figure out how to make sure we have a safe and secure electric system and the electricity is there for essential services. And we believe that this is really the time for the regulators and legislators to step back and see if there are a way that we can bring more energy to the edge of the grid, which means more localized sources of energy, so that if it if you do have high wind and dry conditions, utilities can feel secure in turning off that power and still knowing that there would be sources for essential services more locally based. And that's what we offer. We offer the opportunity for in the case of Sunrun, residents to have distributed solar and storage, which can continue to operate when separated from the grid now. But also, you know, other companies, commercial solar companies, have the technology to keep schools, you know, energized and hospitals energized and fire stations energized. And part of what has brought Sunrun so is really helping us focus on this was When Hurricane Maria hit in Puerto Rico a year and a half ago, we had not been in Puerto Rico, but we again had this feeling we wanted to try to see what we could do with our technology to be part of the solution. And in that case, we went down on a philanthropic basis and worked with some fire stations and found out that in a very short period of time, we were able to enable them to um, have the energy they needed for communications. Because after that hurricane, they could not even take emergency calls. They had no communications. After a day of work of us putting solar and storage on this fire station, all of a sudden they were able to serve their community. And that's what we think California and other places around the country that are facing these kind of you know terrible challenges, they need to start thinking about how to empower local communities to serve themselves. So these are microgrids. How are the economics of this kind of a wide-scale microgrid compared to the economics of ratepayers investing in new transmission and distribution systems? Well, you know, I think traditionally people have thought microgrids, very expensive. How could we possibly do it? And I don't have the exact numbers for you, but all you need to do is look at the literally billions of dollars, right, that have now been lost in the areas of these fires that we just experienced, not to mention, you know, the the really, they're, they're, what value can you put on the 80 plus lives that we think have been lost in paradise? This is something that we really need to step back and say, yes, it, there may be expenses involved in putting systems on, you know, schools and hospitals in some of these more remote communities and providing some incentives for homeowners to have access to generate their own electricity. But it's very hard for me to think that that cost is going to come anywhere near to the cost that we're now experiencing from the drastic effects of feeling that you have to keep these systems energized. So, you know, we already know costs of upgrading transmission and distribution systems, many of which are you know, 70, 50, 70 years old are very significant in and of themselves. But when you then look at the cost of the tragedies that are happening, I mean, it seems like it's not going to be a very difficult cost-benefit analysis to make. Yeah, some of the data that I've seen is that the, the cost of these distributed systems behind the meter systems are comparable to the extra investments that the traditional utilities have to make on their distribution system. So you know, rather than put in lots of new wires and transformers and substations, another good option, which is economically competitive, is just a lot of microgrids. But why don't utilities support these distributed generation systems more? What's their reluctance? All right. Well, we're hopeful that, you know, one of the outcomes of 
um, this tragedy is going to be the ability to work with the utilities uh, more closely, particularly in California, because we know that they they want to do the right thing. Um, they are, you know, have this challenge of providing electricity across the country in a across the state in a state that is facing very very dangerous weather conditions. So we're hopeful that that we're going to be able to work in partnership with the utilities because that's the way that this is going to be most effective. But we also have to step back and look, you know, across the country, even before these resiliency challenges, we know utilities have not been huge fans of competitive, you know, competition of distributed generation, whether it's just solar or solar plus storage. And part of that goes to the regulatory structure. You know, we know that traditionally uh, regulated monopolies are paid uh, based on uh, the capital investments that they put in the ground. So if they do an upgrade for transmission, they can get incentive rates from FERC. If they get approval to put more sensors on their distribution system, they can get some additional rates of return from their local you know, state utility commission. We need to start really seriously you know, trying to make sure they have the right incentives in both carrots and sticks to look at the most cost-effective and resilient options, and we think that we are really part of that, and it's up to the regulators to to really look at this closely. Oh, good, good. Many solar contractors offer battery storage systems. So what are the benefits to consumers? So this is such an exciting time because battery storage is now available to residential consumers, and it's really just been in the last, I'd say, two years that it's really started to take hold. And for Sunrun, we started offering it in Hawaii, and then we brought it to California, and now we have it, we're offering it in three or four other states, and it's critical in Puerto Rico. Every system that we provide for customers in Puerto Rico comes with battery storage. So the reason it's so beneficial for consumers, particularly in California, is now that we have time of use rates with you know every solar customer, it's really a really critical tool for customers to be able to essentially shift the time that they use the solar that they generate. Because the prices that they're going to receive when most of the solar is generated in the middle of the day are much, much lower than the prices they could receive if they share the power later in the day. And by sharing power later in the day, they're also doing a tremendous service to the system and to their, you know, their neighbors, because that is bringing down the need for the utility to purchase energy at a higher price, you know, at a peak time. So the customer gets the benefit of being able to get greater value out of their solar by having a battery, and they also get the benefit of sharing this, you know, great energy they're creating with their neighbors. And an, an additional benefit that we're seeing now, again, we just talked about the fires, is that in those instances where the utilities are going to have to shut off a system because they're at a time of high winds and a danger fire time, these customers who have batteries will have the ability to continue to have access to electricity. So that's going to be a tremendous value for those customers who go ahead and sign up for batteries as well. So, yeah, what I found is I went to market with battery storage systems in Silicon Valley, focusing on the time shifting of mm-hmm. energy use. And what I found in like almost every single case is a customer said, yeah, yeah, that's nice, but I want backup power because my power is going out, you know, three or four times a year, anywhere from you know an hour to a, a day. And that's the benefit that they're buying into. And it changes it from economic, like they can go do the payback for arbitrage, versus it's emotional. And they'll pay a lot more for the emotional benefit. So that was a surprise to me. Yeah. And, you know, I came from Maryland where I was on the Public Service Commission. And 
from the time of Superstorm Sandy up till, you know, a year or two ago, there were just a, a range of very big outages in the mid-Atlantic. And customers would be out of service for a week, 10 days, right? Which is really a huge burden on customers. And so I really believe when we first started offering batteries at Sunrun, I would say to folks inside the business, we have to start offering them in the mid-Atlantic because people have these huge outages and it's really painful. And this is going to be something very valuable. But now we're seeing that this resiliency need is very high in California, too, and as well as certainly places like Puerto Rico. And so I think you're right. I mean, we certainly have the economic value that customers can have. And and as time of use rates start taking hold over the next year and a half to all customers in California, we're going to see an even greater interest, I think, in, in how people can manage their time that they use electricity from the grid. But in addition, we've got resiliency now and backup and security. But we also still also have customers who, you know, really want to do this for environmental reasons. Yeah. And, you know, again, when I think back to the mid-Atlantic, when there were those storms, we had so many people run out and buy these gas generators, right, which are really counter to the need, what we need to be doing (laughs) for climate change. And so now there's an alternative that is not reliant on gas or some other type of diesel for some of the commercial operations. Let's start using, you know, finding a way to use this clean energy that we can generate. And we can do that now with batteries. Yeah. So like my family on the East Coast, New Jersey, they went out and they got generators and it was hard to get the generators and they had the generators and everything was good for like two days. And then they couldn't get any more gas because the gas stations didn't have electricity and everybody's running around. I'm like, gee, this reminds me of 1973, the energy crisis. But, you know, kind of going back to the way the solar industry's grown and, and the prices have come down a lot, the prices for solar panels have come down so much. But even with relatively inexpensive solar panels. I mean, they've probably come down by a factor of seven or eight over the past 20 years. Why don't more people put in solar? Why is solar still kind of expensive? You know, what's holding us back? Well, there's a couple of things. We know, you know, we did have early adopters and we're hoping we're coming to that point now, particularly now that there's more than just economics driving this. We are seeing a greater uptick of interest of customers for for different reasons. But one of the kind of (laughs) difficult, it's not intractable, but difficult challenges we have is we have to keep pushing to get the costs, more costs out of solar. And one of the things that's been very difficult, I think, is some of these, what they call soft costs, whether it's the permitting costs or the delays in the interconnection process or costs involved with interconnection upgrades that are being placed on solar by some of the utilities. These are all costs that we should be able to significantly reduce with streamlining. And that's one of the big initiatives that Sunrun and other companies participating with SIA and the Solar Foundation are taking on this year as one of our top priorities. And that's to try to work on finding a way to streamlining the cost of connecting people once they've decided they want to go solar. So what's the savings potential there? Well, some studies have shown that if you look at countries like Australia and Germany, that their costs of solar are at least a dollar a watt less. That's very significant. That's like 30%, right, of what we're looking at is kind of the average cost per watt of having a solar system. So if you could take a dollar a watt out, that would take it down 30%. And it's at a very important time because right now we're facing the prospect of the investment tax credit starting to phase down over the next few years, which does provide a 30% cost reduction 
questions. So we feel a real strong sense of urgency to get policymakers, local HJs, and you know permitting officials to work with us to find a way to really take these costs out. And of course, you still want to make sure that you have systems in place, that you have correct licensing and permitting. And we believe there's a way to do it much more efficiently. And that's what we're working on. And anyone who's listening who is in the industry, I really urge you to get engaged with us because... When we get these ideas out there, what we're trying to do is to come up with some type of common application process, almost like think of it a little bit like the common app in college applications, right? So you could have something that could be really simple and that could be adopted by all these local agencies with some adjustments, you know, specific to their area if needed. But we're going to need local companies like yours who have relationships, right, in communities, whether it's in Silicon Valley or it's somewhere in upstate New York, who can go and then meet with local officials and help them see that if they use this more streamlined process, they're still going to have the control they feel they need, but we could take a lot of costs out. Yeah, you know, the local installers like yes. like my company have great relationships with most of the cities. In San Jose, I can get a permit over the counter. I never even have to go there. It's all electronic sometimes. Mm-hmm. Then I don't have great relationships with some of the cities that put me through like a one-month process just to get a simple permit. And I look at how much we can save. You mentioned a dollar a watt. If the average system selling for, you know, it's a 6,000-watt system, that's a $6,000 savings to the customer. Right. That's a third of the cost. It's terrific. So, so that's big, really a potential. big priority, and, and it's one that we need to get more people engaged in. What's the organization to do that? Should they get in touch with you at Sunrun? Should they get in touch with SIA? Should they get in touch with CALSA, California right. Solar and Storage Association? What's the mechanism? They Foundation. Certainly get in touch with us because my team is very focused on this and, and working, I'd say, in a leadership role on this. But SIA is also, so I would say you can contact SIA if you're a SIA member, and also the Solar Foundation. So it's a cooperative effort between a number of solar companies and then those two organizations. But yes, we're definitely going to need more participants. And again, particularly once we get this process in place to start getting the word out. Speaking about getting the word out, the solar industry is, it's somewhat organized. It's kind of like herding cats, but they're out there. But what about getting the actual solar customers involved, the homeowners, the the people who work at businesses where there's solar panels on the roof of their business? What's the industry doing to kind of mobilize that grassroots effort? Great. Well, I'm glad you asked that because we've really... We have recognized in our advocacy that what matters most to policymakers is that they care about the voters and they care about the consumers. And so, of course, they care about businesses, and so we'll, they'll talk to us and we'll meet with them frequently. But they really want to know how this is affecting the voters and their consumers. And so in California, we're really fortunate that in the last year, a new organization has been developed called the Solar Rights Alliance. And this is a very, very big year in California. I cannot urge that enough in terms of policy. This is the year where the California Public Utility Commission is going to take another look at net metering. This is the year where we do have a lot of policy that's going to be considered around the fire issue. And it's also the year where things are going to be gearing up for the new homes initiative of 2020. So we really need voices of consumers at the table and to make sure at all times that the legislators realize that solar is incredibly popular. You know, every survey that's taken shows that. 
and our customers are happy when they able you know they get solar and they're able to generate their own energy. So this is a mechanism where those customers, so Sunrun, you know, has shared this opportunity with our customers to say there's this Solar Rights Alliance, and that's what we need. We need other companies to work with the Solar Rights Alliance so that they can reach out to their customers and empower those customers to become active politically through letters, through phone calls, through you know, testimonials. This is all really, really important this year. Yeah. And what we did at Cinnamon Energy Systems a year or two ago is we basically gave the Solar Rights Alliance our mailing list for one-time use. And they basically discreetly and carefully sent emails to those people saying, would you like to join the Solar Rights Alliance? So I'm really looking forward to all the solar contractors, all the companies involved in solar, to just temporarily provide your list to this group. They're really an honorable group of people. And then really try and get your customers, that, that millions and millions of people that, that have solar on their homes or businesses, advocating for the needs that we have in the industry. Maybe get the people who are living at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. Part of that, too, someday. We'll see where that yeah, goes. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that's absolutely the case. And we also gave our list. So I think everyone listening should know that this is done in a way that's confidential. So you don't have to worry about competitors getting your customers or anything. This is all done through a third party. And it is going to, we hope, grow to be a very, very powerful voice. Good. How can people get in touch with Sunrun, you know, either for a solar system or obviously they're a competitor of Cinnamon Energy Systems, yeah. but we're all on the same side, or get in touch with your advocacy group? Sure. So you can always find us on sunrun.com. We're also active on Facebook and Twitter. Sunrun, I guess, at Sunrun on Twitter. I also am active on Twitter at, at A.E. Hoskins. So I do try to comment on some of the key policy developments that are happening. And yes, you know, we're very active in California, around the country, 23 states. We would love to share our technology with any consumers who are interested or local partners. You know, we work a lot with local solar companies as part of our model when we offer solar as a service. So yeah, we'd be happy to hear from anyone who's listening. And yes, we're all part of a really important ecosystem together. And so I really appreciate, Barry, you, you know, inviting me to come on and share some of the work that Sunrun is doing. But there's never been a more important time for companies to engage because it's got to be a whole range of voices that policymakers hear. They don't want to just hear from the large national providers. And so we are very open to sharing what we do. I have an amazing team. I've got 20 folks on my team who are super knowledgeable. We will share what we know with anyone who wants to come out and join their voices. Oh, great. All right. Well, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks, Anne, for joining me on the show here. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at Cinema. And listen to the podcasts. 